Well, on August 1st, an article appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle about Hayward resident Indy Nelson, who's fighting to uh, earn a place in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the youngest person to have visited the 193 countries recognized by the UN, plus the Vatican City, Kosovo, and Taiwan. The article by Gregory Thomas notes that Nelson is what some might call a country collector, a traveler who racks up experiences while keeping track of every particular Many country collectors view travel as a calling, while others treat it as a sport. But depending on which short source you read, and I have two of them in front of me, the Chronicle article and another piece a few days later, he's either in or not in the Guinness Book of World Records. The Chronicle said he wasn't, but an article a few days later, evidently put out by his fraternity, says he is. The article notes that Guinness does set some standards for, you know, how you can be the youngest, fastest, etc., uh, travelers vying for the record aren't allowed to rent cars or pay for private transportation. Taxis and ferries are permitted over certain distances. This guy apparently set out to do this and spent $106,000, although he claimed he was broke. In 539 days, he visited 196 countries. If you do the math, that works out to a country every 66 hours. I have to ask you, does that sound like fun? The Chronicle article notes that Nelson says he doesn't have an interest in making a career off his title to spend having spent $106,000. What he really wants, he said, is validation for years of work. I guess for, for him, years of work constitutes breathing in a different sovereign nation's airspace. But I have some doubts about this. The, the fawning piece, puff piece written by his fraternity organization, noted that um, he got permission from Guinness that if he crossed the 39th parallel, technically that's North Korea. So he crossed the border at the DMZ, noting that that was, well, interesting. I'd have to say, I I don't think he saw a great deal of North Korea. Tourists visiting Thailand, I remember many years ago, it's called the Opium Triangle, which is now a tourist attraction. You're allowed to walk across the Mekong River Bridge and stand in Burma. To, to say that you've, you've been in Burma. Apparently the Burmese border guards would rake a little off the top. You get to claim another country and, you know, everybody, everybody benefits, sort of. And the more I read about this, the worse it gets. On the average, says his, uh, his fraternity, he spent three days in each country. Well, a little less, two and three quarters. However, they note in several countries he spent only a few hours, whether it be to avoid danger or because the country was very small. For example, when visiting West Africa, he visited 35 countries in 35 days, but would spend mere hours in some and a few days in others. That article notes that since his travels have ended, Indy has refocused on reacclimatizing himself to normal life. He has returned to California and begun looking for jobs. Ideally, he will end up in Silicon Valley working in software development, and doesn't that just figure? This does, however, give me some motivation, I think. I think I'm going to try to be the oldest, slowest person to visit all 196 countries. At the moment, I stand slightly over halfway there. But, uh, you know, I, th- I think you probably, probably should spend the night in a country to be able to count it. Or, or at the very least, not walk across the DMZ and say, Hey, North Korea, add it to the list. Let's talk about much more serious things. We noted on this program a couple months ago that, according to NPR.org, global greenhouse gases emissions are expected to fall by 8% this year, the largest decrease on record. 
But the UN says that emissions will need to fall by that amount each year for the next decade to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius and avoid the worst effects of climate change. We've been sitting on an article about the godfather of climate change for some time. There was a piece in the New Yorker, the July 27th issue, to be exact, referring back to a profile done in the magazine on June 29th of 2009, 11 years earlier, about James Hansen. The article had a few things in it I certainly was unaware of. Mr. Miller, that's not appropriate bumper music for an article on James Hansen. The Muppets originator was Jim Henson. Anyway, back when James Hansen was a, a student, he was at the University of Iowa getting a PhD in physics. He wrote his dissertation on the atmosphere of Venus. From there, he went to the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, where he took up the study of Venusian clouds. This is particularly interesting to me because of the fact that we now know Venus probably started out with a climate similar to its twin, Earth. Venus and Earth are almost almost the same size. But at this point in time, uh, Venus has an atmosphere 200 times thicker. The story goes that if you took all of the carbonate rock on Earth and vaporized it, converted it into CO2, we'd be equal. This is not a good idea, however, because surface temperatures on Venus run about 800 degrees because of a runaway greenhouse effect. Anyway, that's how Hansen got to start looking at what CO2 can do for you, at least if you have a little more than you'd like. But back in 1973, as the first Pioneer Venus mission was announced by NASA, James Hansen began designing an instrument, a polarimeter, to be carried on the orbiter. But soon enough, his research interest began to shift back to planet Earth. A trio of chemists, who would later share a Nobel Prize, had discovered that chlorofluorocarbons and other man-made chemicals would break down the Earth's ozone layer. It had also become clear that greenhouse gases were rapidly building up in our atmosphere. Hansen told author Elizabeth Colbert, We realized we had a planet that was changing before our eyes. Hansen got interested in creating a computer model, a computer program, which was originally designed to forecast the weather to see if it could be used to look further into the future of Earth with rising CO2 levels. The piece notes that when Hansen began his modeling, there were good theoretical reasons for believing that increased CO2 levels would cause the world to warm, but little empirical evidence. We would also cite a study done by Exxon, done in about 1982, which we talked about in this program, that predicted CO2 levels in the year 2020 pretty much where we are exactly. Exxon downplayed the threat this would be to our um, increasing atmospheric temperatures. And wouldn't you know it, it turns out that that, uh, the temperature is rising faster than those models predicted 40 years ago. And boy, has the work of James Hansen shown that. A few years into his project, Hansen concluded that a new pattern was about to emerge. In 1981, he became director of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies. In a paper published that year in Science, he forecast that the following decade, 1980s, would be unusually warm, which turned out to be the case. In the same paper, he predicted the 1990s would be warmer still, which also turned out to be true. Finally, he forecast that by the end of the 20th century, a global warming signal would emerge from the noise of natural climate variability, which also has proved to be correct. Later, Hansen became even more specific. In 1990, he bet a room full of scientists that that year, or one of the following two, would be the warmest on record. Within nine months, he won the bet. 
1991, he predicted that owing to the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines, average global temperatures would drop and then a few years later recommence their upward climb, which is precisely what happened. The article notes that throughout the 1980s and 1990s, the evidence of climate change and its potential hazards continued to grow. Hansen kept expecting the political system to respond. This, after all, was what happened with the ozone problem. Proof that chlorofluorocarbons were destroying the ozone layer came in 1985, when British scientists discovered an ozone hole had opened up over Antarctica. The crisis was resolved, or at least prevented from growing worse, by an international treaty phasing out chlorofluorocarbons, which was ratified in 1987. Writer Bill McKibben said at first Jim's work didn't take an activist bent at all. I think he thought as I did. If we get this set of facts out in front of everybody, they're so powerful, so overwhelming, that people will do what needs to be done. Of course, that was naive on both our parts. Reading a little further ahead, it notes that the bad news out of this modeling is it's become clear that the dangerous amount of carbon dioxide is no more than 350 parts per million. The really bad news is that CO2 levels have reached 385 parts per million. In fact, we're now at 415. And if current emission trends continue, they will reach 450 parts per million by the year 2035. It turns out that the worst offender in all of this are coal-burning power plants. Hansen says, if we had a moratorium on any new coal plants and phased out existing ones over the next 20 years, we could get back to 350 parts per million within several decades. Reforestation, for example, if practiced on a massive scale, could begin to draw global CO2 levels down. So it's technically feasible, but it requires us to take action promptly. I was not fully aware until I read this article that there is broad agreement among scientists that coal represents the most serious threat to the climate, and it provides half of the electricity in the United States. Coal, half of the electricity in the United States. In China, that figures closer to 80%, and a new coal-fired power plant comes online every week or two. As the world's oil supplies continue to dwindle, there will still be plenty of coal which is already being converted into a very dirty liquid fuel. We have to pause for a bit of dark comedy at this moment, recalling the, uh, the Young Turks session where they were replaying a, a, a tape of Donald Trump addressing a group and talking about how they were going to have beautiful clean coal. And as he was describing clean coal, he mimicked a sort of dish rag-like motion of his hands as if you were going to clean the coal like you might a, a dirty dinner plate. Anyway... The ultimate answer for James Hansen, in addition to getting rid of coal, is a carbon tax. We've been, adica- we've been advocating for that in this program for, I don't know, 15 years. We've also talked at great length in this program about how it is nuclear power might be the lesser of evils. We're talking about the latest generation of nuclear technology. Uh, n- nuclear industry has gotten a deserved black eye for the fact that it really has been Part of the military-industrial complex, when they built the nuclear plants in this country, they're all custom-made, kind of like a, you know, a custom sports car. France, on the other hand, has, I don't know, something like 58 nuclear plants. They're all identical. France gets 90% of its energy from nuclear power. Yes, there are issues with nuclear waste. There are issues with nuclear proliferation, etc., etc. We don't want to downplay those, but the fact of the matter is, we're killing planet Earth with CO2, and we better find some answers to that pronto. Anyway, we recommend you read that article and read up on the topic, dear listener. It's, it's not going to go away. 
as much as people can pretend that it's a PR problem that, um, you know, if we ignore it studiously enough, it won't, won't be an issue, which sort of reminds me of how the Trump administration is dealing with COVID-19. But we're not going to spend too much time on that today. But, but, but it is an election year. A great deal of how we're going to deal with things like global warming um, are going to depend upon who wins national and statewide elections in this country come November. I don't think I'm going out on too big of a limb to suggest that if Donald Trump is reelected, we won't see a lot of action taken on global warming, which, like coronavirus, is generally described as a hoax. We think it is becoming more obvious over the summer that coronavirus is, is not, in fact, a hoax. It reflected in the polls across the country, showing that Donald Trump's approval rating is cratering. I'd have to say in relationship to that, and, and why shouldn't it crater? Got a poll here from 27th of July, done from the Associated Press slash NORC Center for Public Affairs Research, showing that Trump's approval for his handling of the coronavirus pandemic is at 32% of Americans. And no, why it isn't 2% of Americans, we cannot explain. But to quote from a piece by Julie Pace and Hannah Fingerhood, which appeared in the East Bay Times, These political headwinds have sparked a sudden shift in the White House and the Trump campaign after spending months playing down the pandemic and largely ignoring the virus's resurgence in several states. Trump warned this past week, this is now two weeks ago, that the situation would likely get worse before it gets better. Well, and how? After repeatedly minimizing the importance of wearing masks to limit the spread of the virus, Trump urged Americans to do exactly that. But having done many, many programs here on Radio Parallax looking into voter theft, voter fraud, how elections have been stolen in the past couple of decades, and we don't just mean one or two, we're deeply fearful that there will be tremendous shenanigans this November. The phrase October Surprise entered uh, into the language many years ago, most famously as regards the Reagan-Carter campaign in 1980 when it was feared by the Republicans that Jimmy Carter would cut a deal with the Ayatollah in Iran to return the hostages that they had captured the year before. The Republicans were deeply fearful that this quote-unquote October surprise would benefit Carter and allow him to get reelected. that they took some matters into their own hands. A deal was cut between William Casey, possibly George Herbert Walker Bush, and others acting on behalf of the Reagan administration to um, ensure the Iranians that they were going to get a better deal out of Reagan if they would do him this little favor of keeping the hostages in captivity, which they did. The hostages described their jailers looking at their watch and opening up (laughs) the doors to their cells when they knew that back in Washington, Reagan had just been inaugurated. And we predict here on this program, and I think you've heard it here first, that there is likely to be another October surprise this October. And we're going to also predict what we think that's going to be. An announcement by the Trump administration that a vaccine is at hand. And if you're of a certain age, the phrase that peace is at hand will make you cringe. Well, that's if you're old enough to remember 1972. The Vietnam War was enormously unpopular by 1972 and had been for many years. The Democrats nominated George McGovern to go up against Nixon and accuse him of, of, of dawdling 
well, to put it kindly, as resolving uh, the Vietnam War. In fact, Nixon expanded the war into the air and was spending probably more money on it than they, they had at any point before that. You would think, with such an unpopular war going on, that uh, George McGovern would have gotten a little more traction. He, in fact, lost by a landslide. But one thing that contributed to that was the fact that right before the election, in October of 1972, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger went before the cameras to announce that peace negotiations with the North Vietnamese were going very well. I think he told the world press, this means peace is at hand. Peace is at hand. It sounded pretty good to a lot of people. That isn't the only reason he won in a landslide in 1972, but it certainly didn't hurt. Of course, what do you know? It turned out peace wasn't exactly at hand. Negotiations broke down after the election in December. Lee Ducto and Kissinger were able to come to agreement in January of the next year, 1973. But the war really did continue up till such time as uh, the U.S. withdrew in 1975 with those famous scenes of helicopters evacuating people off the embassy roof, etc. Anyway, October surprise, pretty scary idea. I'm of the opinion that if James Comey of the FBI had not produced his own October surprise claiming that they were going to reinvestigate Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump probably wouldn't have gotten elected in 2016. Comey did admit a few days later, oops, my mistake, but by then the damage was done. The chicanery in October before an election was pretty legendary. Back in 1968, Lyndon Baines Johnson was desperate to come up with a peace agreement that would help Hubert Humphrey in the fall election. And wouldn't you know it, Tricky Dick Nixon, who had a little connection named Henry Kissinger involved with the Paris peace talks, instead sabotaged those peace talks, convincing the South Vietnamese government to withdraw and ensuring that there would be no peace settlement achieved in 1968. It's worth thinking of these things as we look forward to October of this year and the possibility that Jared Kushner is going to go before the cameras and say, it looks as though we now have a vaccine. We're all going to be okay, as we've been saying all along. Never mind the 200,000 dead we will have by then, maybe three. And, of course, as mentioned this program and elsewhere, Donald Trump was talking tentatively about, you know, postponing the election, which has fortunately gotten a huge blowback from his own party saying, no, that's not going to happen. But the key thing to keep in mind here in August of 2020 is that um, if you would like to see a change in administrations in Washington, that you must not assume that this is in the bag for Joe Biden. Because if history's shown us anything, it is not. If you look at the current status of polls in all of these swing states, you'd have to say it looks especially bad for Donald Trump. You need 270 electoral votes to win this thing. The most conservative estimate I've seen is that Biden's already at 268. And reasonable forecasts uh, based on solid data would have him into the 300s. Donald Trump pretty much has to take Florida. If Joe Biden wins Florida, it's over. Biden currently holds substantial leads in those Rust Belt states that shockingly went to Trump in 2016, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. He's running five points ahead of Trump in Arizona. The two men are tied in Iowa. They're tied in Georgia. Biden has a slight edge in polling in Texas, also North Carolina. And he's only down by two percentage points in Ohio. I know that all sounds rather confusing, perhaps, but if you go to the websites that allow you to click on the electoral map of the United States, it'll become clear to you that Trump really is in trouble. 
and I think it's clear to his people as well. There's a very real fear out there that if a lot of states go to mail-in votes, which in time of a pandemic they are going to do, then we face a scenario where the early returns from voting machines come in right away showing Trump ahead and prompting him to declare victory before all of the votes are counted. When when all those mail-in votes are counted, he probably will not still be ahead. He lost by just shy of 3 million in the popular vote four years ago. And at the present, he's running way behind his numbers from that time period. Under normal circumstances, we'd be looking at a landslide defeat for Donald Trump. But let's reiterate the fact that these are not normal circumstances. Writing in the WashingtonPost.com, Jennifer Rubin notes that Trump still has that base of white evangelicals and men without college degrees. But the rest of his 2016 coalition apparently has seen enough. The white women who chose Trump over Clinton by 47 to 45 now prefer Biden 55 to 38. Seniors whom Trump won by nine points in 2016 now favor Biden by a startling 14 points in the Quinnipiac polls, perhaps because of the disastrous pandemic non-response. Trump won the suburbs by 4% in 2016. He's currently losing them by 25%. Now, if you have friends that you know in these swing states, any of the ones we just mentioned, well, let's mention them again. If you've got friends in Arizona, and I would say Nevada, or Texas, or Iowa, or Wisconsin, or Michigan, or Pennsylvania, or Ohio, or North Carolina, or Georgia, or Florida, or even Arkansas, all of which seem to be in play, I would suggest you reach out to them to make your case for why it is, well... Trump's pandemic response alone should probably get him re-impeached. The head of the Federalist Society thinks they should re-impeach him simply for suggesting we move the election. But it's funny. I have a really good friend that lives in Wisconsin, so I've sort of enjoyed uh, bantering back and forth on Facebook with Wisconsinites, realizing I'm reaching people in the Badger State. At one point, my friend was pointing out that, you know, they're going to cheat. There's bound to be cheating, and there's bound to be errors on mail-in voting. We kind of went back and forth on this for the benefit of his people, really, is why I'm doing it, to say that, you know, absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, they're the same thing. Republicans, conservatives have for decades enjoyed the privilege of absentee balloting. So if it works for them, why can't it work for everyone? On this next week's show, we're going to talk about how it is our new postal uh, postmaster general uh, appears to be slowing down the delivery of the mail we would suggest probably for political reasons. Even after taking that line of reasoning, I don't think my my buddy was was really convinced. And then Trump helped me out. Apparently, after it was pointed out to him, it was the elderly voters, the conservative elderly voter of Florida that apparently swung that state to him, that prompted Trump to then come forward and say, well, he wasn't completely against mail-in voting. The governor in Florida had apparently done such a good job of managing how this process would go that he felt that Florida should be allowed to do mail-in balloting. This prompted a response from my buddy of, oh, I don't, I'm totally against Trump on this. It shouldn't matter who the governor is. So there you go. We achieved some agreement. I can't say that I did as well with uh, another correspondent here in California who pointed out that the real COVID virus death rate in California, or rather survival rate, was, per his math, 99.986%. He achieved this number by taking all California residents, 40 million, comparing it to the 10,000 deaths, 
and concluding that, well, obviously the death rate wasn't so bad. We'll go over the flaw in that logic on next week's program. I think it's a pretty wide misconception. And we'll close with one final bizarre article from the world of politics in the year 2020, which is the fact that in Kansas, Representative Roger Marshall soundly defeated far-right firebrand Chris Kobach this week in the GOP Senate primary. Here's the part that shocks me. Following liberals' efforts to choose Kobach's candidacy, supposedly a Democratic-linked super PAC spent $5 million on behalf of Kobach, a staunch President Trump ally known for his hardline immigration views and baseless accusations of voter fraud. Trump resisted many Republican pleas to endorse Marshall and stayed neutral in the primary. Kobach lost the gubernatorial race against Laura Kelly in 2018, and Democrats believed he would give them a beatable opponent in that state, which last elected a Democrat to the Senate 88 years ago. To which I would say, never underestimate the ability of the Democratic Party to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Kobach was, you know, public enemy number one in Greg Palace's view in terms of his cross-check efforts to deny uh, black people the right to vote in various states of the union. It's quite a story. If you don't know anything about it, you may want to look up Greg Palace's website for more information or just noodle around upon Chris Kobach, K-O-B-A-C-H. It looks as though for the second time in two years, he's been denied high office, but we have a feeling he'll be back. And so will we for our regularly scheduled broadcast later this same week. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This thing's not in the bag. Don't think that it is. We'd also like to advance promote the fact that we're going to hold a contest for the Trump campaign's theme song. He's gotten into some trouble. The, apparently, Neil Young is ready to sue the campaign for his use of uh, various Neil Young songs which we think was rocking in the free world. Tom Petty, as a state, already uh, denied him the right to use I Won't Back Down. Poor Donald Trump. He needs a campaign song. We're going to see if we can help with that process. In fact, Mr. Mullen, why don't, we start, uh, why don't we start that process with our outro music today? Why don't we try on Mac the Knife for size? We'll see you later this week. Oh, the shark, baby. Has such teeth, dear And it shows them Pearly white Just a jackknife Has old Maggie Heath, baby 